This is Josie Brown with Author Provocateur. Today, my guest is Daniel Pine, author of the thriller novel Water Memory. Daniel's protagonist, Aubrey Centro, is a black ops specialist who may be one concussion away from death. But when Pirate sees the cargo ship she's on, she must decide whether to risk her life to save her fellow passengers. Centro's training kicks in, and she's able to elude her captors, leaving bodies in her wake. But her problems are just getting started. Her memory lapses are getting more frequent. As she plays a deadly game of cat and mouse with the pirates, she pushes herself to survive by focusing on thoughts of her children. She'd never told them what she really does for a living, and now she might not get the chance. While memories make her vulnerable, motherhood makes her dangerous. I want to tell you, man, I loved your book. Oh, thank you so much. And, oh my God, Aubrey, Aubrey Centro. All I could think about was, poor lady, and what a kick-ass. I love the ending. I love the way you write. To my mind, you have an eloquence to your voice. And I don't always find that in thrillers. So it means a lot to me when I do. To me, it's like John le Carré, literature that also happens to be a thrilling story. Thank you. He's, he's one of my heroes. He and um, Graham Greene. Oh, I love Graham Greene, too. But it's a mixed bag because I find that there are readers who are really resistant to it. The feedback is, oh, it's too literary. It's too lyrical. It's, I, I think those are the people who like Lee Childs and like Tom Clancy. They like that more direct, stripped down, masculine or, or so-called masculine voice. I'm glad you liked it. You say masculine, but I liken you to Hemingway because you're very spare in your words, but the words count. And that was a big plus to my thinking as to why I kept turning the page to find out not just where the plot was going, but where the story was going. To me, that's different from the plot because I wanted to hear about her. I wanted to figure her out. And you sparsed her out slowly. You gave us her backstory, but you gave it to us in bits and pieces. And you gave us the puzzle behind it up until the very end, how it formed her as a human being and as a covert operative. Mm -hmm. How did you come up with her? I mean, I'm looking at all the things that I know about the tortured hero, or in this case, the tortured heroine, I don't see a lot of tropes per se. I see a lot of humanity. I like writing strong women. And I have in my film career, I've done a lot of them. And in fact, the first movie I ever made, Pacific Heights, was originally not about a couple. It was really about her. She was in the same relationship, but it, it was driven by the Melanie Griffith character. And at that time, the studio they wanted to pull back a little bit on it. And it was also very much about gender role reversal and expectations because, um, I don't know, I've always been interested in that. I know a lot of strong women who are the breadwinner in a relationship and the stresses that puts on a relationship. And then because I've written this kind of thing and rewritten this kind of thing for film, I thought it might be interesting to explore what happens if you put a woman in this in the role that traditionally you'd put, you know, Bruce Willis or it, you know that that kind of conventional Jack Reacher character who are great, but what happens when you change that a little bit? And I did a lot of reading on women in who have been in the CIA and been in MI6 and 
this character kind of cycled and I, I was really interested in exploring her and how she might approach the job differently or in the same way that a man would. And then at the same time, I'm, I was also interested in how that affected her home life because I have a couple of kids and, you know, my wife and I talk about our different roles and, and how we approach things. There's also a phenomenon in Hollywood where directors especially will go away for a long period of time. So you're not with your family, you're away from your family. And I know some women who have had to make that decision. And what does that do? You know, how does that affect your relationship with your kids? So it all kind of came together. And then, as I said, in the afterword of the book, I was on a scout with Tak Fujimoto, the cinematographer. I had just met him and we were talking about, I was asking what was the last thing he was working on. The usual kind of chat that you do in the bus on the way to a location. And he started telling me this story about how he said he'd just come back from a trip on a cargo ship. And he described it. And there's like eight passengers or seven passengers. He said, it's really dull. You know, he brought a lot of books and he read and he sat out on the deck and just watched the ocean go by. So that then dovetailed with, oh, that's kind of interesting. What if Aubrey is on this boat? And I just kind of went from there. I love that. One of the questions I had for you was, oh, the research you did on boats, especially cargo ships. I live in San Francisco, so I see the boats go in and out, especially the big cargo ships with the Japanese names or the Chinese names on them. You know, on these big old ships that are loaded in with all this stuff. And then when they go back out, they're higher than when they were when they came into the bay. And I heard about the trips you can take. And I thought you did a wonderful job describing, you know, what the tourist anticipation is for it, how they pitch it. But then you bring out this whole underbelly of what could really happen. <laughs> That's not in the brochures now, is it? Right. Yeah. Some of it I've stretched. I created a hybrid boat that I don't think really exists. Um, and my one regret is I didn't get to actually go and do a trip, but I get a little seasick, so I'm not the best seafaring person, um, and I really didn't have time for it. So I found a kind of a self-published memoir that this couple wrote about a trip they'd taken on a cruise ship, and I went back and I looked at some blogs from people. So I got I got the feeling of what the average person experiences and what they like about it, what they don't like about it. And that was really helpful. I bet. And the research you must have done, too, on piracy, it was a full circle. I felt like I could imagine every piece that was happening when the boat got pirated or what should have happened, because obviously there was a twist, which I loved. I loved the twist. It was very noir, which I also loved. You know, you have a wonderful femme fatale in Fontaine. Mm -hmm. I don't want to spoil it for people, but I felt you had her fully rounded, too. She was someone you could love or love to hate. She wasn't all black. She wasn't all white. You could see that there was a pathos to her. But at the same time, who's she playing and what is she playing them for? Which I thought with someone with Aubrey's unfortunate memory loss, that played very well into the story. Which is another thing I want to talk about. Aubrey's memory loss. Mm -hmm. Because that's the thread that's going to help her think of what she's going to do next or <laughs> forget what she just did. How did you come up with that as a plot point? Um, I can't remember. 
<laughs> Actually, uh, one of the themes that runs through all my writing has to do with identity and memory and how what we remember influences the decisions we make and how I did a, a previous book called 50 Mice that was also about memory. And what I learned in the research for that was that all memory is flawed. The minute we put a memory down, it's flawed because the experience is happening in real time. The memory is looking back at it from a, a different perspective. So you can never get it right. You can never know exactly what happened ever. And that started me down the road of just, I've been interested in memory and interested in um, what happens to people with Alzheimer's or senility, regular memory loss. And then I, I started to get interested in head injuries in sports and that stuff. And even, you know, young men coming out of the National Football League in their 20s are tested. And what's most fascinating about it is how little we understand of it. So I had a lot of leeway. Aubrey doesn't have Alzheimer's. She has this very badly understood condition where traumatic injury has affected the way that her brain is able to recall things. And they really don't understand it. And they don't understand why some people get it and some people don't. Some people get it after one concussion. Some people don't ever get it. They don't know. So I was able to play with the fact that she's scared when she gets the diagnosis and she's concerned about it. But at the same time, it's uncertain how much it's going to affect her. It's definitely affecting her in the short run right now. But I didn't want to do a thing where it's necessarily progressive. It might be, you know, it might be going. And then how does that affect you? Like we can all relate to it when you can't remember something, when you draw a blank. And what happens when those blanks get longer? One of the threads you had throughout it, uh, not just her memory, but the painful memories she had about her stepfather and her mother and how she processed that pain and how it drove her to be the person that she is today, how it colored the relationship she had with her now deceased husband and also her children, and how, as adult children, they haven't processed all that they don't know about their mother. Right. But I love the way that, at the end, they become a bigger part of her story. She needs them as much as they needed her all those years. Right. Um, you have a wonderful way of expressing how children feel when they are disconnected with their parents. Mm -hmm. How deep did you have to reach for that? Particularly with Jenny, because there was a broken heart, some real shards there. Yeah. Um, you know, once I get going, maybe I'm lucky, but once I get going, that kind of thing is something I can tap into. It's, I, di I didn't have a traumatic childhood but I can understand how it affects people. I mean, I read a lot. And speaking of Le Carre, the relationship between George Smiley and his wife, who really is, is almost a cipher in his books. I mean, really never there. They, you never really see conversations between them. And yet the way that it makes him vulnerable, the way that it affects has affected him over time and the way that it defines him is the kind of thing that I wanted to do with that. And now that my children are grown, I think I always assumed 
you know, they're 18 and they go away and you never see them again, or, or they're adults and, and the relationship really changes. And I'm finding that that's just not true. They stay important in different ways, depending upon you and depending upon the relationship. So that interests me. And I also have long had an interest because I've run into some people who were the children of CIA agents. And I've always been interested in what did they know? Did they know? How much did they know? And what did they do with that information? Because what do you tell your kids? And what do you not tell your kids? And what do you not tell them? And in, in Aubrey's case, I felt because she's not she's not a classic tradecraft spy. She's a little bit more of a brute force. She's a fixer. Um, and because of that, I felt like she might draw this line thinking they don't need to know what I do. And I actually don't want them to know that that even exists because it's a threat to them. And the less they know about it, the better. So she makes this decision to draw a line and not tell them. But the consequences of those lies are obviously going to catch up with her sooner or later. They're going to find out. Right. You know, there's a lot of redemption in the book. You give the secondary characters opportunities for redemption. You've got this kind of ship of fools. Yeah, no, it is. Really, it's it's a ship of fools. Literally, Catherine Ann Porter is another is another inspiration for this thing. But I don't know. It, it took a while to write it. So I was able to craft those things. I want to get into when you were putting people on the ship, how you knew certain characters would play out. You know, the people that you think won't have a lot of play in the plot, <laughs> they end up having a lot of play in the plot. You have all these serendipitous characters who suddenly they have a skill set. You know, when you get on a boat, you know, you don't know who they are. <laughs> it was very Agatha Christie who they ended up being. You didn't have a lot of dead characters. Let's put it that way. Mm -hmm. Did you have fun with them? How did you decide, oh, this is what he's going to do. Um, this is how she's going to fit in. Also, the island. You have this wonderful little pirate island. Barbary Coast. Right, Barbary Coast. And um, you have the doctor and the one that he loves who's pregnant, his girlfriend, and her brother. My God, what a kid. You know, when we first see him, we're like, hmm, he's a goner. <laughs> so where did they come into your psyche where you said, no, I need him for this? No, he'll be wonderful for that. Um, it's more, I like to think it's a little more organic in that um, it starts with, for example, with Zola. I put him on the boat because these pirates tend to be kids. They tend to be really young. So I put him on the pirate with the pirates at the beginning. And then I blew him up. And then I thought, oh, maybe he survives. And when I got to the city and I got to the, you know, when, it, when I get to the bay, characters just kind of reappear for me. And he was one that I thought, oh, he's, he's doing his own version of plundering. He's coming back. And, and now he has kind of, he has a grudge because they tried to blow him up, which makes him potentially more of an ally. And I needed to give Centro some allies on the island because she can't do it by herself. Right. So it's this very organic process of just, sometimes it's surprising myself with who shows up. And then um, one of the things that screenwriting has taught me, and I'm sure 
regular non-screenwriting novels go at it in a different way. But early on, I learned that every character in a movie or a television show has to be played by an actor and they create their own stories. If you don't do it, they will do it. You know, the person who plays clerk number two in the 7-Eleven who has one scene, they'll create a story for themselves so that they know what they're doing in that moment. And I became really interested in doing that job for them. So as I get to scenes, as I bring my main character into a scene, uh, whoever she's interacting with, I step back and I say, okay, what's their day been like? Who are they? You know, how are they different? So for example, the doctor, what's he doing on this island? Maybe he's American. Maybe he's running away from things. Um, Maybe it's interesting for her to have a doctor there. And I didn't know that then I would need him later. But then as Aubrey tries to solve her problems, she starts to pull these people back in. So it really is, it's a trade-off. It's, you know, character sort of defines structure, but structure also defines character. What decisions people make defines how the story unfolds, but how the story is unfolding defines who these people are and the decisions they're going to make. So at its best, it's a symbiotic relationship. When it goes awry, it's really trouble. Right. Screenwriting to me is more of a visual writing, whereas writing a book is more internal, intense. Mm -hmm. But I could imagine by how the plot played out that you could see it as a movie in your mind's eye, which I assume is the goal with every book you write that people can actually see it as a movie. Yeah. My father was a painter and a sculptor and a commercial artist. So I kind of inherited that point of view of looking at things, scenes, and being able to kind of choreograph things inside of it. But definitely my prose writing has been affected by the fact that for so long I had to figure out how to show everything because you can't in a movie you can't know what a character is thinking so you have to express it in some visual dramatic way you have to figure out how the picture is going to tell you what's going on inside of them and one of the challenges of making the transition is remembering that in a book you don't have to do that because (laughs) I keep going oh look it's obvious here what's going on because this is what they're doing And it's like, no, tell me what's going on inside her head. So that's always a bit of a balance. It's funny. In my regard, as someone who's written books first and screenplays later, I had the issue of, no, no, you have to visualize it. Yeah, that's the hard thing in screenplays. (laughs) It's that. and, And the other thing, you know, the Hemingway of screenplays is that, as you know, you have to learn how to express a complicated visual idea in as few words as possible because people don't want to read the description. So you have to develop a technique where you can tell them what they need to know, but in the fewest words possible. And at the same time, because a screenplay isn't a movie, you have to express it in a way that they see the movie that's going to happen. So you have to do it in these very dynamic, active ways. Writing it in present tense is a, is a screenwriter thing. Right, right. The Germans have a philosophy. They say you should figure out what you want first 
and then work your way backward to get there. Mm-hmm. When I got through the end of your book with the great reveal, um, I was very impressed with what it was and how it was displayed and how you kind of twisted it so that the reader wouldn't have necessarily gone there. So when they get there, they go, oh, like that. Right. Um, do you approach all your writing that way? I mean, is that something you do with your books and your screenplays as well? Or did you do it with your screenplays first and then started doing it with your books? I know you wrote books prior, but everything's different, right? Yeah. And yeah, I, the one thing that I do with both, I tend to outline. So where a lot of my writer friends, screenwriter friends too, will just start and they kind of know where they're going. I do that, but I do it in the outline phase first so that I can do it quickly and kind of get a sense of what the structure of a piece is. So generally I do it that way, but a lot of times I'll do part of it. So in this case, the two big twists in the story, I didn't have them when I started. And then they kind of seemed natural. And after the first twist happens, it sort of meant I had to pay it off somehow. There had to be a reason for it. And then as I was going along, I was I was trying to figure out, well, what would be the reason that this would happen? What's gone wrong here? And then I played with it and I built it. Some of it was also from the research I did about how um, piracy is a business. And I, I thought there's a whole nother movie that you could make about that. But this idea that the insurance companies and the pirates, they have their own market system and these boats will get grabbed and they'll very quickly negotiate a fee and then let them go. And the insurance companies insure it and the, the shipping companies think it's just a cost of going through that region. Um, and the pirates make money. But really who makes money is is the insurance companies and the brokers who are taking a, a fee. So that kind of interested me. And, and the fact that underneath this sort of chaotic piracy was perhaps something else. And also it was something that would surprise Aubrey because she thinks, you know, it's bad guys on a boat and I'm going to fix it. But no, there are these pressures. And even from the passengers and the crew, it's don't do that. You know, let it just play out. Right. We know what's happening here. So, so no, no, just let it play out. And then because of that, I thought, well, now there have to be other levels because otherwise there's nowhere for me to go. It's always, I'm always thinking, well, what's the next level that I can peel away here and and reveal something else that interests me? And I also, the world is not black and white. So I prefer these kinds of stories to be less about supervillains and extraordinary men meeting up with them than it is about relatively regular people dealing with relatively regular corrupted people who have their own agenda and what that means. And it makes everyone a little rounder. You can kind of understand their pain, even though the way they're expressing it is really horrible. That goes to the core of what I'm interested in as a writer. Right. What's going to happen next for Aubrey? Is there a next book for her? There is. I was so excited. Um, Thomas and Mercer approached me in the summer and said, do you have a sequel? And I've never written a sequel to anything except in television. Um, But I kind of 
because of all the research I'd done and because of, I, I love this area, I did sort of have another story for Aubrey that I sort of hinted at it in the book. She talks a little bit about a really bad mission in Berlin at the very beginning of her career. And so I'm writing a new, a second book that deals with that. It's sort of a prequel sequel because you kind of get more of a, of a feeling of what turned her into the person she is from, you know, the girl who gets pregnant at 17 and has her first child and joins the military because she needs the money. What made her so good? What was this thing? And then it turns out that it's kind of playing out present day. So she has to deal with it again. But, you know, it's scary because it's it's not the same kind of motor for the story. It's not another story about her falling into a violent situation and having to solve it. This is a much more measured piece and kind of goes all over the place as she's trying to track down pieces of her past that she, on the one hand, doesn't remember. And on the other hand, because of this, are coming back in new ways. So I've been working on that. Good. And I am. Um... I think she's malleable. I don't think you have to put her in the same track every time because, you know, because A, it is a novel format, not like a TV movie. I mean, I, I know that because I, I was just on this show, Bosch. Oh, yeah. I love Bosch. Yeah, Michael Connolly's books. I was running that and then left. Uh, but they did one more season, which I'm very anxious to see how it wrapped up. But Michael does this thing where, you know, he has his character and there there's a it's not a formula for him as much as it's it's always a crime that that Harry has to solve. So there's a kind of a structural boundary to it. And I know that people like that and I kind of like it sometimes. But what I love about Le Carre is that his stories are always different. They're in the world, but they're different pieces of that world. And I felt like she's a an interesting enough character, and she's had this whole career that I don't really delve into very much, that I can pick bits and pieces of if I want to. And then sort of this transition into what happens when you stop, but you're still pretty young. So I think, I'm hoping it works out. We'll see. I think it will. You know, it's interesting too, you know, the way you did the flashbacks in this book. It's all about memory, as you point out, and you don't always have to start from the beginning to tell a story. The way you're doing it, you can always have some kind of flashback of something that happened, or that could be the main story, but it moves the story forward at the same time. Yeah. I, I also like the Philip Kerr novels, and he jumps all over the place, which is, I love that there's a chronology to them, but he didn't write them in the chronology. He jumped forward and then backwards, and, and he just sort of fills in the gaps where he needs to. Right, right. You seem to go to the psyche. What, what makes this person tick? including Aubrey, your protagonist. Right. At every sense of the word she's thinking, what's making this guy tick? Why is he acting this way? When in essence, he's on the boat, is including the captain. or They think they know what's going on. Right. One of the things, I had this really interesting conversation once on a completely unrelated project. I met a former special forces guy. He was really young. He was late 20s who had been in Afghanistan for a couple of tours, and I was using him as background for this movie that I was trying to fix. He came to my office and we talked for a long time. And what struck me about him was we started talking and I said, you know, I don't really, 
do I need to do research on how special forces works and tactics and all that? And he said, well, yeah, you could. But he said, I have to tell you there's, and I think I, I put a version of this in the book. He said, there's, we go in with a plan, but that's never what happens. And basically what makes us a little bit better than the average person is our ability to improvise once we're in these incredibly stressful situations and improvise and survive. So, and one of the ways they do it is by trying to understand in the moment what the psychology of everyone is in that moment, rather than, you know, what's their master plan or something. And he talked about how so many of the things, the scary situations he'd been in were completely unpredictable. Um, And that part of it gave me the freedom to write about it because I really didn't want to tread in territory that that Lee Childs and Clancy and all those guys tread in. Um, I thought that maybe there was room for this different voice, this different way of approaching that world. In the same way that I think LeCarey, maybe Graham Greene started it, but they just demythologized it. And I just love reading those books about these regular people who are doing these odd, this odd work, but they're not extraordinary people. They're flawed, just, just like we are. You know, it's, I like that about those books. I do too. It means you're learning about the person. The job is extemporaneous. Yeah. How they do their job and why it's different from the world that we live in. But definitely it's about the soul and the character more so than it's about the plot. Right. Right. Yeah. The plot just becomes this motor to help you turn pages. And, but that's what, you know, I, I feel like a lot of my favorite novelists write thrillers and adventure novels, but they're Hemingway or, or Faulkner. I mean, Sanctuary, um, for whom the bell tolls. You know, those are really their adventure stories and they're, they're thrillers. Um, to have and have not is a thriller. So that, that idea that literature isn't that, I think is a more modern idea that comes out of the post-war um, John Cheever school of these smaller domestic dramas about people who have you know, psychological crises. And I love reading those too, but I'm more drawn to these bigger adventures and uh, stories with more momentum. And more, more heart. Yeah. Daniel Pine's latest thriller, Memory Water, is available now on Amazon. This is Josie Brown with Author Provocateur. <laughs>